All right. Thanks very much from uh, our friends and colleagues at Earth, uh, Earth Matters. Thank you, Megan. We Important enjoy show. Earth Matters and we leave that to run as long as we can. Indeed. Because it is important. Yeah, imagine being in the flood recovery areas. It must be a nightmare. Uh, incredibly difficult. And yeah. we send out our uh, regrets and condolences out to those who've lost so much and have been in, su- for such a long time, have been in such a bad state. Yeah. Continually. I mean, for the last two years, Australia has been subject to. Uh, climate change issues one way or another. That's yeah. like, the only way to describe it. You know, floods, famine. Yeah. Bushfires. Pandemics, yeah. bushfires, dust storms, maybe mice plagues. You know, there yeah. just hasn't been anything. We ha- Anyway, well, we're, we're, this is news from the drug it war It is news front. from the drug war front. <laughs> so um, for those who might think they've uh, tuned into the wrong show, yeah. welcome to today's edition of News from the Drug War Front, brought to you by Karma. The Canberra Alliance for Harm Minimisation and Advocacy, which is a peer-based community-controlled drug user organisation that has uh, over two decades of serving uh, the ACT. Now, the aim of the show, for those who haven't heard it, is to do the news, um, firstly, and also for Marion and I to debate the impact of prohibition, which we've had for some 60 years, um, on a global scale, really, with the ratification of the 1961 uh, United Nations Single Convention on Narcotic Drugs, Sadly, these global policies remain predominantly unchanged, um, so we'd like to get people to um, yeah, consider the other side of the story as to whether prohibition... Uh, Which is our side of the debate, our basically. Our side of the debate, you know, yeah. We do debate it, but we debate it from our side, and although we both debated it from the same side, we are providing a, an avenue for that side to be heard because there is no... Other side. I'm Marion, by the way, and Good that morning. was Jeff. Good morning, <laughs> Jeffrey. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot to introduce myself. Good morning, everybody. Nice to talk to you once again. Lovely to be in the studios of Two Double X ninety eight point three, and thank you, Public Radio. We're very glad to be here, um, and glad to be supported by Two Double X. And all people should think about supporting Two Double X because it is Public Radio and is the only way that you will get a program like ours on air um, and available nationally through the Public Radio Network yeah. and also uh, by podcast. Community hopefully. Radio is a valuable resource, as we say often. That's um, right. Every, and we and appreciate their support. Always. Yep. Do you want to do a quick summary of uh, yeah, what Karma uh, does for this? What Karma does, that's right. Um, Karma supports this um, we, we do this on behalf of Karma. We do it at the show. We both represent Karma in terms of what we say from this show. And Karma's activities are peer support, uh, a wide range of services like client advocacy, peer treatment support, education, creative arts, mentoring, and referrals. The connection is Canberra's peer-based drug and alcohol service for our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander clients. Both services are located in the Church's Centre, Belconnen at Shop 17, Level 154 Benjamin Way. The drop-in is open again and the hours are 10am to 4pm Monday to Friday. The office phone number is 6253 3643. Um, there are a lot, so the issues that uh, Karma helps people with are opioid maintenance treatment like methadone, 
this opioid maintenance treatment, like methadone, buprenorphine, or more recently, the long-acting injectable forms of buprenorphine, buvital, and sublocade. Treatment for hepatitis C, the impact of stigma and discrimination, availability of detox and rehab services, all issues faced by people adversely impacted by prohibition and the war on people who use drugs. The much-anticipated Jude Byrne Women's Group will commence on the first Friday in May, which is the 6th of May, for those who are interested. Um, so ring when you can if you're interested in becoming a member of this group. It will be small in number to, so that it can be manageable and the... Uh, Due to having to follow the safe uh, protocols from COVID in particular because we are still having upwards of 700 a day. I think 700 of what the infection numbers were yesterday. The ages of people who are being getting infected um, has has gone up. It was mostly children. The great since kids went back to school, the numbers were up around a thousand, but that was largely in children. The age range now is between 25 and 35, um, which means it's in, among older people. It's still the Omicron version, um, but type B, I think. So hopefully everybody's been vaccinated um, and is considering the fourth shot or the second booster shot. Um, it's certainly so not over. It isn't <clears throat> finished. Don't imagine that it's finished. Uh, it's a pandemic, and pandemics are... The meaning of the word pandemic means everywhere, and it's an illness. So it hasn't stopped, and it goes on infecting. But protect yourself as much as you can. That's what the vaccines do. That's what the booster shot does. Or it doesn't stop you from getting the disease, but it stops you from dying, hopefully. hopefully or it yeah. lessens your risk it of dying. It gives you itself the best chance of That's um, right. Gives doing you a well. better chance and stops you from hopefully from infecting others and becoming infected yourself. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the longer term, Marion, whether it's just like well, going to become I've, another like annual I'm flu. I'm getting or... the feeling like, yes, that it's going to be like the flu that it's and that we will have to go on being um getting vaccines every year as we do for the flu these days and mm. certainly the flu and the and the second booster shot are going to be put together i think oh, okay like all in the same range anyway makes sense anyway get listen get in touch with um monica yep. today uh, six two five three three six four three, and uh, if you want to get in, into the Jude Byrne Memorial Grid, which deals with issues for women who have uh, had issues with CYPS about losing their children um, due to being a drug user, largely, and there it seems to be an issue for women who use drugs are immediately considered to be bad mothers. Yeah. So they lose their children. Boom. Full stop. Yeah. And until they jump through hoops, they have to, and a whole range of hoops that are designed by people who don't necessarily have children. But once you pull a family apart, you can't put them back together yeah. ever the same way. So this group is a really good way. And it's done in, in the name of Jude, who really, Jude Burns really kicked off that kind of 
um, support group for women and who were dealing with those CYP or welfare services who'd taken their children away and put them into foster care because they were using drugs. And Jude started that many years ago. Yeah. So it's rightly in her name. Very appropriate. Yeah. So give you know, give Monica a ring. And uh, on 6253 3643 and... See if it's for you. See if you can fit in. Yep. See if you can get in. Uh, my colleague Dave pointed out to me over the... Uh, well, yesterday, that uh, Chris Bailey, the former lead singer of the Saints, passed away. Yeah, it's um, very sad to hear. I think, 65 he was. Uh, he's born in 57, so yeah. what would that make him? Yeah, 64 maybe? Yeah, well... Still, not old. Not, no. Um, and... His uh, bandmates posted uh, on the announcement on Facebook on Monday. Um, doesn't say what the cause of death was. I guess it really doesn't matter. But um, Dave has actually uh, gone to the trouble of giving me their first two CDs. So we're going to play some um, We are going to play some Saints in tracks. In honour of uh, Chris Bailey. Yes. Yeah. Okay, news from the Drug War Front reports on news stories that are relevant to the illicit drug use or to illicit drug users from Australia and around the world. Many of the articles featured in this program come from other sources, including the mainstream media. The contents of the news from the Drug War Front broadcast do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of Karma and the Connection. Karma does not condone nor condemn drug use and we do not promote illegal activity. However, we do recognise that drug use happens and will continue to happen regardless of laws and UN conventions. As such, Karma focuses on harm reduction messages, drug treatment support services, advocacy and community development. We seek to reduce the harms associated with drug use and its criminalisation through the provision of programs that foster community development and the delivery of person-centred holistic health care. Karma advocates for equity of health service delivery for all people, which, as we often say, it shouldn't be too much to ask. Um, no, none the, drug user or not drug user, everybody is a person hmm. and human rights apply to all people. Sentient beings, let's face it, those who think are entitled to human rights. We'd hope as a citizen of the country you would be entitled to... Um... Well, we're allowed to vote. Maybe that should be thought of when they're given the... Uh... The way the world is at the moment. Yeah, there's a lot to, <laughs> to not be too excited about. But um, anyway, Indeed. But, but, and, and you know, as a big issue for me at the moment, the war in Ukraine, oh, and we will do it, be doing We've an article on that yep. later on. Yeah. Um, we'll also do some songs in in uh, in memory of uh, the Saints lead singer, um, who Chris, I think Chris Bailey. Was, yeah, Chris Bailey and. Who was it said that um, they were they were punk before punk was fashionable? They were a seminal band. Yeah, no doubt. they were. Yeah, they were well, well known overseas too, which is really you know pretty important for pretty a, important a band. for an Australian band yeah. who really performed a lot in Australia. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah, were well known. Anyway, all right, important. we'll kick off with their most well known song uh, from their debut album. It's I'm stranded. I'm stranded. Yeah, the Saints. Okay. All right, that was the Saints with uh, I'm Stranded. Yep. Welcome back to News from the Drug War Front with Jeff and Marion in the 2 X studio, 98.3 FM, people-powered radio. It, it doesn't give too many details just on the... Um, on the article. The article I got just the... Yeah, he was born in 57 in Kenya to Irish parents, lived the first seven years of his life in Belfast before they emigrated to Australia, lived in Anala in Brisbane. 65 is reasonably young for somebody these days to die. Um, well, it's younger than me, and uh, 
so I wonder if they're investigating it first before they release any more information. Possibly, yeah. I mean, yeah. there's a possibility that it has something to do with COVID, um, but it may not. Mm. I guess um, we'll wait to hear. And not really, yeah, we'll wait to hear anyway. Speaking of um, Australian singers, I, I found a piece uh, about Daniel Johns. Who used yeah, to that was sing for very Silver interesting. Chair. Johns, and it's from um, by Mike Russell from crikey.com.au. I'm from April the 11th. Johns admits, admits drink driving from rehab. A magistrate has warned former Silver Chair frontman Daniel Johns that he could be facing prison time for drink driving that led to a crash. Former Silver Chair frontman Daniel Johns could be facing jail time after pleading guilty to high-range drink driving. The 42-year-old is in a rehab centre and therefore was absent from court in the New South Wales Hunter Valley on Monday when his lawyer entered a plea on his behalf. Johns wanted the matter dealt with immediately because it's causing him anxiety during his three-month rehabilitation program. Lawyer Brian Wrench told Raymond Terrace Local Court. But Magistrate Ian Cheatham rejected the request, saying the offence was too serious and and there was a possibility that Johns could be jailed. Mr Cheatham adjourned the case to June the 22nd for sentence and ordered Johns contact Corrective Services New South Wales officers within seven days, so a sentence assessment... A sentencing assessment report could be completed. Mr Wrench had earlier handed the magistrate an extensive report compiled by John's defence team, including background information from medical experts and references from his parents and a brother, in a bid to avoid having John's interviewed by corrective services officers. The defence lawyer told the court... John's understood the serious nature of the offence and had been suffering significant mental health issues since he was 13. Which I think he's spoken about on a number of occasions. Many occasions, yeah. yeah. The defence lawyer told the court... Oh, hang on, no. Mr Wrench said John's was a very reclusive person with a complex range of mental health issues and had been vilified by the media before he was charged with drink driving. John's had suffered from reactive arthritis and anorexia where he at one stage weighed 50 kilograms, which is very small, very tiny for a young man, really, mm. and he's quite tall too, so mm. 50 it's kilograms. Yeah. yeah, very small weight. Um, he's, quote, the lawyer is, was so debilitated at one stage when he weighed 50 kilograms that he couldn't move, the lawyer, the lawyer said, and quoted as saying he's dealt with the adverse impact of fame, fame that he never wanted. He doesn't like it. His main focus is his mental health. Johns was prepared to accept a ban on drinking alcohol as part of any intensive corrections order imposed on him if it meant avoiding jail, Mr Rinch said. Well, when it comes to jail, all those factors get taken into account, um, but the level is the most important thing. Yeah, the major thing about going to jail is that that doesn't necessarily stop any of those things happening. So, you know, the consumption of alcohol, learning how to make alcohol out of fruit, out of sugar products. Not hard. <laughs> it, well, that's what they do in jail. Yeah. I mean, they practice ways of avoiding 
um, reality because mm. reality in jail is not, not pleasant. Very nice. No, not and very if nice. this guy, if Daniel Jones is already suffering mental health issues, going to jail is not going to help him one little bit. I fail to see how it's going to help help with. And him. I wonder if everything that he is being organised for him would have been dealt with in a, in a different way if it hadn't have been Daniel, Daniel Johns from Silverchair. Hmm. Well, you wouldn't know, have made the papers probably. Well, no, I, yeah, indeed. I mean, I think that's the problem is that it, because it's popular and because it's been put into the media, the mainstream media, and probably with a great headline and probably a major story hmm. um, of the major, the major story of the day because it's Daniel Johns of Silverchair, they would have, yes, been... Basically, they would have been making it really very difficult for him to do anything or for the magistrate, if you like, to do anything but deal with it um, subject to the media's scrutiny, mm. which is really difficult for any kind of drug user. Oh, absolutely. Um, the issue for me is whereas cannabis doesn't prove impairment, it just proves the existence of a trace element of THC in your system, yep. the science is pretty much established in terms of the levels of um, al- blood alcohol level that equates yep. to incapacity, impairment, impairment and, to drive. Yeah, and, and how intoxicated actually shows because of how much blood is, how much of the alcohol is in your bloodstream, yeah. And that makes you a risk to other it people. Does. So. And that's that's the problem. Yeah, absolutely. That's actually what it says in the story. Anyway, it concludes on. that um, police uh, said that Johns had been three times over the legal alcohol limit when his car crossed to the wrong side of the road and crashed into a van in the New South Wales Hunter region at about 10.30pm on Wednesday, March 23rd. He voluntarily admitted himself into a rehab facility after the accident. Johns had driven his grey SUV out of a service station on the Pacific Highway at North Arm Cove and headed north before crashing into the van. Both vehicles ended up on a nature strip. Johns was was breathalysed and returned a blood alcohol level of 0.157. So that's three over three times. The, mm. the band driver, 51, and his female passenger, 55, were treated at the scene and the woman was taken to hospital. Johns posted on Instagram the next day to more than 100,000 followers that he was going into rehab, rehab. And he's quoted as saying, As you know, my mental health is a work in progress. I have my good days and bad days but it's something I always have to manage. He posted, over the last week I began, I began to experience panic attacks. Last night I got lost whilst driving and I was in an, in an accident. I'm okay, everyone is okay. I have to step back now as I'm self-admitting to a rehab centre and I don't know how long I'll be there. Appreciate your love and support as always. So he obviously realised, yeah, he that he'd done Well, he knows he's done the wrong done thing. The wrong and thing. I think he publicly, you know, he actually put out on social media... You know, he's sorry and he's okay. And although the the other people, people, what it says in the other article, you know, earlier in the article is that the people went to jail. The woman went to hospital rather, not went to jail, sorry, went to hospital. Um, So, they, you know, there was a risk of injury and maybe they were looking at what kind of injuries the uh, passenger and the driver of the other vehicle had and there weren't, by the sound of it, there wasn't much. Thank goodness. Yes, thank goodness. But Daniel Jones Jones acknowledges this in his media post and I think that's important in his post on social media. Oh, absolutely. So it's not like he's saying... 
So what he's saying is everybody is okay, but you can bet that the general mainstream media will be saying the woman, the passenger, went to hospital. hospital. That would be highlighted. Yeah, but it just goes to show that just because uh, a drug is deemed legal or licit doesn't mean that there are harms, aren't harms associated and That's potential right. serious ones. I mean, Indeed. How many people are killed in motor vehicle accidents with alcohol um, as a factor? Well, the majority of, of deaths with um, in cars is because alcohol is a factor, and yeah. I think we know that. That's been, you know, well and true the case for a long time. We've known that for ages. Yeah. But... Um, Mental health issues are a real problem. Absolutely. And how to um, deal with mental health. Um, as a younger person who's 42, I mean, what does he do? What? How does he look after himself? It's mental health. You know, is he being treated for his mental health? Well, fame's and how a two-edged is he sword. Treated. Sorry? Fame is a two-edged sword. It is indeed. And if he's saying that he really didn't... It's really difficult when, you know, you're in a band and you're the lead singer of a band. You're going to, you actually do aim for fame or you do aim for success. And with that comes fame. So I guess that's the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. Is that he says that he doesn't want to be famous. He didn't want, didn't seek the fame. Didn't seek it. He didn't look forward to it. Um, But how do you. Make money out of performing if you are not well known. Exactly. That's how you draw crowds and that's how you, you make, make your money. money. And sell records, yeah. All right, uh, we'll play another Saints track. This is uh, from the second album, Eternally Yours, and it's Know Your Product. National Radio News. Hello, I'm Liam O'Connell. Police are still hunting one of the suspects of last night's stabbing at Sydney's Royal Easter Show. A 17-year-old boy was fatally stabbed and another critically injured in front of witnesses at the Easter Show last night. Superintendent Danielle Emerton says police are looking for any footage of the incident, given how crowded the area was. We appeal to um, the community if they would be able to provide, if you saw anything, if you've got any information, please come forward, contact Crime Stoppers 1800 if you have any information. The federal opposition has announced a major overhaul of the fundraising laws for charities. The change would allow charities to begin fundraising online, allowing the organisations to bring in further streams of revenue, as well as streamlining state laws across the nation. Labor's Assistant Treasury Minister says the change would open up charities to millions more in donations and allow communities to be more creative in how they raise money, particularly following natural disasters. The Western Australian Health Department is predicting the state has seen off the peak of its first wave of COVID infections. The state's seven-day rolling average has been trending downwards in recent weeks. Curtin University epidemiologist Archie Clemens says he's confident that will continue, but he told the ABC winter still poses a significant risk. We probably will see new outbreaks happening in the winter. It may well be that the outbreaks are subsequently smaller and smaller. Victoria will officially host the Commonwealth Games after remaining the only host city in contention. The Commonwealth Games Federation has announced to UK media this morning Victoria will be the host state for the Games, praising the pitch as a bold and innovative vision. It's the first time in the Games' nearly 100-year history the hosting rights have been given to a state or region rather than an individual city. Australia last hosted the Games on the Gold Coast in 2018.
New data has shown Australians who are unvaccinated against COVID are three times more likely to die from the disease. The analysis from SA Health compares death rates for groups of patients between those who've had three, two or no doses of the vaccine. The numbers showed only 0.05 of patients who were triple vaccinated died from the disease. It comes as South Australia looks to press on with easing mask mandates in the coming days as the Omicron BA2 wave begins to ease in the state. Evacuation orders remain in place for parts of Sydney's north five days after residents were ordered to leave. Residents have not been allowed to visit their homes with concerns instability on saturated soils could impact homes in the coming days. All clears have been issued for some areas around the Hawkesby River in Sydney and Bungabalban in northern New South Wales after a weekend of misery for residents as homes and businesses went under for a second time. The South Australian Environment Minister has met with environmental groups as concerns grow over dead mangroves north of Adelaide. The issue has been linked back to a mining company illegally filling gypsum ponds with hypersaline water. Susan Close met with representatives of the Conservation Council and the St Kilda Restoration Working Group today. Turning to sport, an AFL CEO, Gil McLaughlin, is expected to step down at the end of the current AFL season. AFL management has called an all-staff meeting, where Mr McLaughlin is expected to make the announcement. Mr McLaughlin has been the CEO of the Australian Football League since 2014. National Radio News, produced by Charles Sturt University, the Community Radio Network, and supported by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. All right, welcome back to this week's news from the drug war front, brought to you by Karma and The Connection, and this is 2XX 98.3 FM, people-powered radio. Um, just a couple of points I wanted to mention um, for those interested in uh, Karma's Naloxone program, or to give it its full title, the Opioid Overdose Recognition and Response with Naloxone Training, aka Naloxone Training. Um, the next uh, public workshop will be held at the Uniting Care Early Morning Centre, which is in Civic, on Tuesday, April 26, starting at 2 pm. Workshop participants are trained to recognise the risk factors and symptoms of opioid overdose and are shown how to respond to um, an, an opioid overdose using naloxone. The workshop lasts about an hour. People who complete the workshop receive a take-home naloxone kit and are reimbursed $30 for their time and trouble. So if you want take-home naloxone but, um, if, uh, but are unable to attend uh, a group workshop, you can call or visit Karma to arrange a naloxone brief intervention. We will be shown how to use naloxone to reverse overdose and supplied with one or more uh, take-home kits, which um, is now a nasal spray. Um, early on in the program, it was... Uh, an ampule, which um, had to be administered intramuscular, but uh, it's much easier now with the um, Nixoid uh, nasal spray preparation. But uh, this will give you the chance to um, have a life-saving device if you come across family, friends, or even a stranger who uh, is suffering an opioid overdose. Uh, naloxone only does one thing, but it does it really well. It uh, brings people back from a potentially fatal overdose and kicks some of the opioids off the receptors in the brain and uh, brings them back. But you still need to keep an eye on them for a while. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, Marion, having administered naloxone many times and seen Indeed. Yep. people return. Absolutely. Although you need to recall, remember that when people have overdosed, after they've overdosed, they don't realise that they've died. 
so when they come back, the naloxone works, right? But when they come back from having overdosed or effectively died because that's what happens, they don't know that that's what happened. And they feel like something's happened, but they don't know Not what. Not sure what. So you have to remind them and keep an eye on them yep. for three quarters of an hour. Yep. But naloxone works without... There's no two ways about it. It's the best thing that we can do, apart from making, you know, <laughs> legally, apart from making heroin or opioids available, um, in good, in quali- knowing the quality and the quantity yeah, and the amount supply. that we're taking. Yeah. If we had a safe supply yet... It'd be, be a whole right. different discussion. But we wouldn't have learning, a program. <laughs> absolutely. We can use naloxone and know that you can stop people from remaining dead. Well, it saves countless lives. Because that's what happens. People die. Yeah. So, yeah, learn how to use it. I just think we should make it available. Everybody should know how to use it. Absolutely. Um, And everybody who knows a user should know how to use naloxone. Yes. And even if you don't know a user, (laughs) I I just think it should be available everywhere. Yeah. And everyone should have naloxone as like you might have, I don't know, a couple of aspirin in case someone's got a headache, as we used to in the old days, or a Panadol or yeah. something. The more a the band aid actually. Better. Yeah. 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 Make it as common as having band aids. Yeah. Because it is that useful. Yeah. It's a no brainer. So. It's a no brainer, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Um, just one last quick thing. Karma's outreach barbecues have reactivated and um Mondays they're at uh, Watson, Wednesdays at Oaks Estate, every second Thursday at Ainsley Village and every Friday at Veterans Park in Civic. Um, so keep that in mind. Uh, that's with the Directions Pat Band, wonderful service. Just get along and have a chat to um, the nurse or the doctor and get a free feed from uh, the Karma Barbecue. Absolutely. And, you know, just get in contact. Getting a free feed is a great idea anyway, but it's also a, a way of getting people to come and meet health service providers, mainstream health service providers as well, because they deal with the kinds of issues that we may avoid going to um, health centres for because of the nature of our other behaviour and we get blamed or treated. Stigmatised. Yeah, yeah. stigmatised largely. And so many people tell me on so many occasions between shows what kinds of of discrimination they face every time they go to, say, an outpatient's department or, you know, from just one of the hospitals where you would expect they would behave better Mm. and treat you better. Um, And, in fact... Take your drug use as a fact, right? Not as something that they can deal with there and then. Mm -hmm. They need to deal with the issue that is being presented rather than tell you what you should be doing with your life. Just assume that, okay, drug use is an issue but not the one that I'm being presented with. It should just be a list of issues amongst many others that you're asked when you come in, you know, Um, but not... To then judge everything else through that prism. Through that, yeah, that looking through that microscope is just it's 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 just unfair. It's wrong, and it doesn't make any difference. You cannot make a difference to the way that somebody lives their lives in a five-minute interview. No, and 
accident and emergency. No. That's not what they're there for. No. They can make a referral if they so desire, but deal with the issue that is being brought, you are confronted with, without making without making reference even yeah. to the drug use that's involved. Yeah. And leave any moral judgments you might have in your own mind. At home. Yeah. Leave them at home. Yeah. They're not helpful. Um, no. And at least, like you said, Marion, at least to a lot of people who have had bad experiences. Not going back. Not going back. And that's the whole point of the barbecues and the pat bus is that you get to have an interaction with a health service provider and your drug use is assumed as a fact but you are not judged on the basis of that. Yeah, exactly. Okay, um, let's do some international stuff. This um, piece uh, is about Germany evidently uh, shutting down a dark net platform. Yes, I wonder if it has anything to do with the Ukraine war, that it's actually a Russian, because it's a Russian platform, isn't it? I'd say it's a fair chance. Yeah. Okay, uh, German investigators uh, shut down a Russian-language dark net uh, marketplace that they say specialised in drug dealing seizing Bitcoin worth 23 million euros. Prosecutors in Frankfurt described the Hydra market platform as the world's biggest illegal darknet marketplace. They said they served its ser- they seized its server infrastructure in Germany. The shutdown was the result of investigations underway since August in which uh, US authorities participated. I'd love to know how you seize an, something that doesn't exist in fact. How do you seize... 23 million Bitcoin. Do you oh. know what I mean? The equivalent of 23 euros worth of Bitcoin. I'm not sure. When it doesn't exist. It, well. It's like, as far as I'm concerned, it's like um, trying to grab a, um, a, I don't know, a Hydra or something. Do you know? A, and, and something that doesn't exist. It mm. exists in theory. It's not something you can have. Beyond, Can't hold it. Beyond my understanding <laughs> to explain, I'm afraid. <laughs> Uh, the U.S. Treasury Department also announced that it was sanctioning Hydra as well as um, the virtual currency exchange Garantex that operates out of Russia. The department said both entities have been used to help finance the activities of ransomware gangs. The Hydra platform's been active uh, at least since 2015, uh, according to German prosecutors. They added that as well as illicit drugs, forged documents, intercepted data and, quote, digital services were offered for sale. They said it had about 17 million registered customer accounts and more than 19,000 registered sellers. Which shows you the popularity of illicit drugs, really, doesn't it? Mm. Prosecutors said that the platform had sales of at least 1.23 billion euros in 2020. Cybercrime research firm Elliptic said Hydra has facilitated over $5 billion in Bitcoin transactions since 2015, receiving a boost after the closure of a key competitor in 2017. Listen, we think we did a, an article on that last week or the week before, Jeffrey. Um, yep. Listings on the site, the quote, Elliptic was quoted as saying, listings on the site also included forged documents, data such as credit card information and digital services. Products were advertised for sale in a number of countries such as Russia, Ukraine, Belarus and Kazakhstan. I think this is just sort of indicative of the effort to try and find sanctions in places that will actually make an impact. Well, and the thing is that Germany cannot sanction uh, Russia in the way that other um, Euro um, countries 
are doing because they rely so heavily heavily on Russian gas oh. for their energy. They're going to have so to they do cannot, something. So they can't use that. They can't sanction their gas import or, um, exports, yeah. Russia's gas exports, because they are heavily dependent, dependent upon it. Yeah. And they wouldn't have any energy because that's all they use. Well, I think about half of their energy, certainly their gas comes from Russia. Yeah, their yeah. gas comes from Russia anyway. Yeah. So, and, you know, with such a cold winter coming up, you know. You'd, you'd notice if there was suddenly no gas. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Got another piece from Al Jazeera about the impact of um, the war on Ukraine, drug users in Ukraine. Which is really important. Well, it's just be so stressful. Um, anyway, it goes, you asked me how things are going. This is how things are going. Sir, Sir, he said, messaged in an online chat before sending a photo of a high-caliber sniper rifle set up in his room in Kyiv as Ukraine's capital tries to fight off Russia's forces. My task is to open fire when the enemy crosses next to my house, otherwise we will all be destroyed. Anyone willing to fight has been handed a rifle, but on top of dodging Russian bombs as a drug-dependent Ukrainian, he is suffering agonising withdrawal. Poor guy. Oh, dear. Mm. I'm taking Lyrica or Pregabalin, he said. It reduces withdrawal, but you can't find it every day. You have to go and search for an open pharmacy, of which maybe one out of seven, which were open pre-war, still remain open. Today, I went around five pharmacies where I used to get methadone on prescription. None of them were open. Another place was open today, but there was a queue of at least 200 people. I didn't want to go into withdrawal right there, so I just went home. Eventually, Sir He managed to find a private pharmacy where an acquaintance sold him Pregabalin under the counter. Before the war, the Kiev-based Vitaly Lavrik was a committee member of the Eurasian Harm Reduction Association, where he represented Ukraine, Moldova and Belarus. Harm reduction is the practice of helping drug users stay as stable and healthy as they can be in their circumstances. He told Al Jazeera the problem is that in Ukraine there are a huge number of paid support programs for opiate uh, dependent opiate users. On average, typical fee-based centre served 30 to 70 opiate-dependent patients per day. In Kyiv, there were more than 45 such paid centres and they closed when all the doctors evacuated. There, prescriptions were written for drugs that were bought in one of the pharmacy chains licensed to sell narcotic substances. Now, many pharmacies are closed or only open for three hours due to curfew. In Ukraine, harm reduction included giving dependent opioid users methadone to ease them off street drugs such as heroin. There are more than 1,300 such patients registered in Kyiv alone. Russia, on the other hand, simply does not accept methadone as a treatment, instead seeing it as just another noxious narcotic. Mm. When Russian forces took the Crimean Peninsula from Ukraine in 2014, they shut methadone clinics. Clients reverted back to heroin and within a year out of approximately 800 registered methadone patients, at least 80 people had fatally overdosed, killing themselves or died of other narcotic causes. Oh, my God. Meanwhile, so that's 10% of the 800 registered addicts, yeah? What a terrible situation. Mm. Meanwhile, in the self-proclaimed Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, pro-Russian rebels forced addicts to dig trenches at gunpoint and there were reports of dealers being taken into the countryside and executed. Al Jazeera was unable to independently verify these reports. Now, as Russia wages war in Ukraine, those suffering addiction are feeling the impact on their health. Quote, um, doses 
of substitute drugs have been cut and in the city of Kharkiv, the only supplies of methadone and buprenorphine have been cut off, says Lavrik. Due to the war, other supplies are disrupted as well. Looking to the future, he added, I assume that after the end of the war, many drug users will return to using again. It all depends on the number of victims. The more suffering, the more addiction. People involved in the illegal drug economy have been affected too. Like in Russia, a huge portion of the black market is served by the dark net, with customers placing orders online then picking them up at hidden drop sites known as a treasure. And those who plant the goods at the special spot are called treasure men. Quote, while the problem lies in the unleashing of a humanitarian crisis by the occupiers, it is now almost impossible to get drugs in Kiev, explained Sue. Quote, the work of the treasure men is paralysed and the prices have skyrocketed. My dose used to cost 4 to $6. Now it's 70 to $80. Whoa. How do you, you afford that? Absolutely. You can't find a dealer anywhere, because, well, especially a day. Yeah, per day. Per day. You can't find a dealer anywhere because if our military and territorial defence spot someone planting a treasure, they may think they're living a signal for an airstrike and use force. Meanwhile, alcohol has also fallen out of reach for many, as several areas of Ukraine have outlawed liquor sales under martial law. Dessa Bergen-Chico, a professor of Public Health and Addiction Studies at Syracuse University, told Al Jazeera by email, quote, the civilian population of Ukraine has been besieged by conflict and instability, which increases the risk factor for substance use and trauma. She added that the use of alcohol and drugs rises during war because security and normal law enforcement mechanisms collapse. Quote, civilians as well as military combatants seek relief from unrelenting fear and alcohol and other drugs provide quick and reliable means of mentally escaping otherwise inescapable trauma. And Geoffrey, I think I told you off air before that the reports from uh, eastern Ukraine of women being raped uh, by soldiers who were invading their areas of Ukraine was uh, were huge and it is a normal and this is what's horrifying about it it is assumed to be a normal strategy or tactic war. of war yeah. time to yeah. rape the women yeah um and the, it is only the women who because they are undefended largely women and children who are trying to evacuate from uh, say Mariupol, for instance, the only avenue they had was to go to, via Russia. That was the only bus route that was open. All the other escape routes had been closed down, although there were buses, humanitarian buses, ready to take them through other avenues. There were no other avenues for them to take. Mm. Um, but rape was just a, strategy, a standard strategy, an accepted, supposedly accepted strategy. And... How you expect women to recover from being repeatedly raped because it doesn't happen just once. It happens every time a a new bunch of soldiers come through the area you happen to be in at the time. Yeah, and a war is just ugly. 
I, and, and look, some of the stories that we've he- been hearing from Ukraine, even through Al Jazeera, through, even through the BBC, through the mainstream media, um, have been horrifying. And but the the statements about rape and mass rape and group rape, and gang rape, in any other terms, as a strategy of war, is just totally unacceptable, and should be a war crime. Yeah, I'm, I'm really quite Im- impressed with Al Jazeera's coverage of the impact on drug users in Ukraine. I haven't seen too many other That's news channels. That's the first... Well, I, have not, I haven't heard of anybody else saying anything about drug users there other than via the uh, internet, via social mm. media. Mm. So it is good to hear that at least somebody's doing something about it. Yeah, and considers it a, a newsworthy story Absolutely. about the impact of... Yeah, well... And you notice that they also include alcohol, yes. which which would normally be considered um, a normally acceptable drug to be or available over the counter. Mm. But the way things are at the moment in Ukraine, all in Ukraine, all men have rifles, and all women are trying to get onto trains or buses to get Find out a of safe the country. Place. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's uh, play another saint song. This is uh, in memory of Chris Bailey. This is uh, Lost and Found, the Saints. All right, it's 27 minutes after 11. You're with Jeff and Marion in the 2XX Studio One, 98.3 FM, People Powered Radio. And that was the Saints from uh, the album Eternally Yours and Lost and Found. I've got a piece from Britain, which I thought... um, Another Al Jazeera piece, Marin. Um, yeah, we seem to be doing, doing quite a lot from there. They, they really are getting into harm reduction stories and stories about drug use and drug users substantially, and I think it's it's good to see. It's really yeah. um, it's about time it was debated openly or more openly. Absolutely. So, yeah. No, yeah. It's, a, it's a quality uh, global news channel. The abuse of child Q should make Britain rethink its drug laws by Imani Jordan and Andre Gomes, aljazeera.com, April the 8th. The intersection of racist policing and harmful drug laws led to the shameful treatment of a 15-year-old schoolgirl. In March 2020, the revelation that a 15-year-old black pupil had been strip-searched by police in a London school after being wrongly accused of having drugs in her possession sent shockwaves across the United Kingdom, and for very good reason. Everything about the 2020 incident is absolutely harrowing. An independent child safeguarding report found that her own teachers called the police on the young girl after suspecting she may be carrying cannabis. Once they arrived at her school, Metropolitan Police officers took the girl into a medical room and strip-searched her without appropriate supervision, despite being aware that she was menstruating. After the invasive... How how embarrassing, how degrading. How degrading for a 15-year-old girl. Absolutely. After the invasive and traumatising search, she was asked to go back into the exam that she had been sitting with no teacher asking anything about her welfare. That's just outrageous, isn't it? That's shocking. The safeguarding report concluded that the treatment of the child was unjustified and racism was, quote, likely a reason why she was strip-searched in the first place. While the trauma inflicted on child Q understandably shocked the nation, the actions of the police in this case can hardly be considered an anomaly. It is well known that communities of colour are disproportionately policed uh, in the UK and British police commonly respond to alleged drug offences, especially when the suspect is a person of colour with violence. 
But racism was not the only reason why this child was subjected to was subjected to a traumatic strip search in her own school. When considering the factors that led to the shameful, shameful treatment of child Q, there's also a need to look at the intersection of institutional racism in the police force and our country's drug laws. Indeed, our drug laws are significantly increasing the possibility of children of colour having contact with the criminal justice system and indirectly facilitating situations where police abuses of power can occur. The prohibition of drug possession has, in practice, given law enforcement a blank cheque to systematically target and criminalise communities of colour. The racist bias in drug searches is blatantly clear in the data. As an organisation advocating for policy reform and drug decriminalisation, Release has impacted, sorry, has highlighted how black and other minority ethnic communities have been disproportionately impacted by our current drug laws, which prohibit the possession of cannabis and any other drugs controlled under the Misuse of Drugs Act 1971. Drug policing, including via strip searches, has particularly targeted people of colour. Black people are stopped and searched for drugs at almost nine times the rate of white people, despite the, quote, find rate being lower for black people. As one of the most invasive forms of searches, strip searches are used surprisingly often on children and almost always for drug possession. In Hackney, the London borough where Child Q was strip-searched, for example, 25 other children had been strip-searched in 2020 and 2021, of which only two were white. Of those 25 searches, 80% had been for drugs. In 22 of those 25 searches, no drugs were found. So that's three so-called successful mm. outcomes for the police. Three and what about where, the where drugs were found of the twenty-five and twenty-five children strip searched. And we've had the same situation situations. in Sydney in recent, well, before COVID, at music festivals where, Indeed. you know, yeah, young girls have been strip searched by male. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't. I was going to say, Jeffrey, I don't think it is any different here than it is in England or in the United States, except that in Australia they just don't uh, invest the drugs issue. They just target the colour mm. of the individuals and it's really horrendous. Um, okay, in each of these cases, after the 25 searches, no drugs were found, right? Uh, 22 of the 25 searches. In each of these cases, police officers thoroughly searched the clothes and possessions of a child determined they were not carrying drugs or unlawful, other unlawful items, but still proceeded to conduct a strip search. They felt the need to strip a minor naked to prove that they were indeed not hiding anything in their body. And this 15-year-old was menstruating at the time too. There's just, just hor- the horrifying. The whole thing's hor- horrendous. It's yeah. horrendous, yeah. Um... The racial disparity in child strip searches is a reflection of black children being denied the presumption of innocence readily offered to their white counterparts. 
it demonstrates that black miners are commonly viewed as a potential threat to public safety. Moralising arguments that drug prohibition is needed to safeguard children do not hold up in practice, as in the case of Child Cute clearly shows. Drug policy is actually exacerbating harm. The dogged, dogged pursuit of eliminating all drug use is enabling police to, to criminalise and traumatise children. This is why Release advocates for non-punitive approaches to drug policy. Indeed, we do not need to look for far, for far for safer and less violent alternatives to the current punitive model of drug control in the UK. And as you said, this is not just um, isolated to the UK. This no, sort of not thing confined is... to the UK no. at all. Uh, over 30 countries and 50 jurisdictions uh, across the world have moved towards decriminalisation of drugs or the removal of criminal sanctions for possession. Of course, there are vastly different models for decriminalisation and some work better than others to reduce harm, particularly those that pair legal reform with harm reduction initiatives and other forms of support for those who wish to access it. But importantly, decriminalisation can be purpose purposefully designed to ensure that police officers are not allowed to deploy callous and traumatising tactics in schools. That'd be a good start. Yeah, well, I would think so, yeah. And imagine how that child would feel amongst her peers at school and, you know... And, I mean, she was taken out of an exam too. I mean, what kind of impact was that, that going done? to have on the exam that she, she was supposed to be completing? Yeah. I would think that... I, I would personally would go back into the exam and say, strip search can't complete. That's... I mean, it's yeah. just ludicrous, really. Well, you're not, not in the right frame of mind to be completing an exam. No, and you go, absolutely. How can they expect you to complete it after you've done that, after they've done that? Yeah, the more I think about it, the worse this story is. Yep. There is much work that needs to be done to ensure that no other child in the UK ever faces the injustice uh, suffered by child Q. Institutional racism and the harms caused by racist policing are simply not going to disappear overnight. Until major changes are made to the role of police in public safety, there will continue to be a traumatised child for every letter of the alphabet, suffering a similar fate as child Q. Drug policy reform, of course, cannot address police violence or end systemic racism on its own, but it can, without a doubt, reduce the amount of contact communities of colour, and especially children, have with the criminal justice system. Reform in the UK's drug policies can be a key step in the long journey towards addressing state violence and changing the way policing occurs in society for the better. Well, mm. that's an understatement. Uh, yeah. Geoffrey, there's another story we've got about um, pill testing, which I think probably fo quite um, appropriately follows on from this because when they were first talking about pill testing and about uh, policing uh, festivals, it looked to me at the time, like an ageist approach, like it was from older people at, on younger people. Only focus on people who are going to festivals, therefore you're probably going to be targeting younger people, people of a, of a certain, certain age, age right? Yeah. So it's going to be a fairly ageist approach. Now we've got ageism, if you like, plus racism. And, you know, combining the two is just means that you stigmatised a proportion of the population that you cannot 
destigmatize. Mm. You can't undo what you've done. It's the same as the as the group that Monica's running. Women, uh, drug users with children who've had them taken off them, that children are taken off them because they are drug users mm. for no other reason, yep. not because they're good or bad mothers, parents, yep. but because they are drug users or have been identified as drug users and you cannot undo that label. Um, I remember when I had my first child and I was uh, on methadone at the time and they were. it was very early in the methadone scene and they really didn't know how to manage that, although there was a, an experienced doctor in Sydney who was actually giving advice on how to manage women, pregnant women on heroin with methadone. Then when I had my second child, the doctor that, or the obstetrician that I saw <laughs> wanted me to... I said, how did you go... And you, were you a drug user when you used... Um, when you had your first child? And I said, I was on methadone. And he wrote down on the form, I was, it was on methadone when she had her first child. I mean, at the time when I had my second child, I wasn't using drugs at all. But I said, you can't put that on there. It's not relevant mm. to what's going on. This was eight years later, Jeffrey. Yeah. Although I have a second child, so the discrimination, the stigmatisation of women and as drug users is once you've been a drug user, you're always a always, drug user. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Once a junkie, always a junkie. By the sound of it, and I, just, I was horrified. I'm not surprised. I and you know, this guy was only writing. He was writing in pen, that's right, and he whited out the piece on the card that he was doing because this was in the days before there were computers, right? So he just put white out over the bit that said that I was on methadone when I had my first child. But it was still visible Mm. because he'd written it on it in pen. I was just horrified that that was the way. At least these days you can totally, completely delete something from the... But how do you know it's been deleted? How do you know that it's not there still mm. in no, the cloud somewhere? Needs to be a lot of and work educating people in the health system. Well, once once you've started discrimination, how do you stop it? Mm. Good question. Yeah? Yeah, and how much damage is done in the meantime? And it worries me even further when we look at this, a 15-year-old girl, black girl, who has been strip-searched while she was having a period, in the middle of an exam to look for drugs and then sent back to the, to the exam after, she, after they'd finished strips. You know, they'd Outrageous. made her get naked. Jeffrey, I just... The whole thing's putrid. It, yeah. it makes me want to vomit. Yeah. And then you think somewhere in there we're having a debate but at a, at a, uh, at a distance about um, abuse of children. Hmm. Well, what's Why does, does yeah. this not relate to magistrates and police? There, are there no police on the list of people who might be um, abusing children, well, sexually should, abusing children? Well, that sounds to me like an abuse of children. Yeah. That sounds to me like they should be down on the list and they should be notified, right? They're local... 
their locality should be notified of the fact that this this policeman made a young black girl strip so that he could see if she had any drugs in her vagina or in her anus. Just another horrendous aspect of um, uh, global prohibition. It just... Yeah. It expands, Jeffrey. That just—it's like a ripple effect, isn't yeah. it? You yeah. know, it just gets bigger and bigger the more you look at it. And yeah, depressing. Um, I'm sorry, people. Here I am, 69. I'm still back, and you know, 60 years ago or 50 years ago, the same debate. Well, <laughs> but it be, the ripple effect is becoming. It's still a, causing harm. It's still it's causing worse harm. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. becoming. But at least it's being. Debated yeah. publicly and now. That's what we're trying to encourage that is people what we to go do. For. Yep. All right, we'll uh, play a quick Saints song. This is Memories Are Made of This, uh, The Saints. Aren't they, Bill? All right, welcome back to News from the Drug War Front, brought to you by Karma and the Connection. And that was The Saints with Memories Are Made of This from their Eternally Yours um, album. Okay. Um, got a health Canada. We've got a piece from Canada where British Columbia are trying to bring in some reforms, but it seems the feds are trying to crimp their style. And we have been actually talking about Canada um, on a regular basis because, you know, this is news from the drug war front, actually. That's what we do is give you some international news. We know often what's going on in Australia. Um, Canada, they've been uh, working on... Uh, certainly over on the West Coast anyway, they've been trying to do some more interesting and less, um, well, some actually drug provision, harm reduction in harm terms reduction of in the real, yeah. controlled supply of drugs yep. uh, to drug users. And that sounds like a reasonably good idea. Okay, this piece is a, roughly about that. Health Canada's mulling BC's drug decriminalisation request, but with a lower threshold, the minister, said the minister. This is by Erica Ibrahim from the Canadian Press, April the 6th. Health Canada is considering British Columbia's decriminalisation request, but with a lower threshold for the amount of drugs a person can carry, says a provincial minister. Mental Health and Addictions Minister Sheila Malcolmson told reporters on Wednesday she received an update on what Health Canada has on its mind and the decision is not final. BC has applied for what exemption request to decriminalise possession of small amounts of drugs has applied for an exemption request to decriminalise possession of small amounts of drugs in an effort to reduce stigma associated with drug use and help save lives. Drug users who purchase above the threshold limit are at risk of arrest and having their drugs confiscated. Leslie McBain, co-founder of Mums Stop the Harm, said Malcolmson shared the update with a circle of stakeholders this week. Everybody who is an advocate was horrified by this, McBain said. BC has requested a cumulative threshold of 4.5 grams for opioids, cocaine and methamphetamine. But McBain said the federal government is mulling a 2.5 gram cumulative threshold. Now that, okay, 
that basically translated into English says, <laughs> or to Australian says, they want it reduced to 2.5 grams, yeah. which in Canberra, over 2.5 grams is a trafficable quantity. So it's an interesting comment that the, they want it to be a 2.5 gram cumulative threshold. And that means that if you have a, a um, three drugs, so if you've got a bit of cocaine, a bit of heroin and a bit of methamphetamine, if you've got 2.5 grams over 2.5 grams, that's your threshold for being arrested and jailed. Whereas what BC is asking for is 4.5 grams of opioids, cocaine and methamphetamine. The office of Carolyn Bennett, Federal Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, said the decision has not been made. She's quoted as saying, we continue to work closely with all applicants through the review process. No decisions on these requests have been made as they remain under review, Bennett's office said in a statement on Wednesday. The province's originally proposed threshold was based on evidence that was presented by people who use drugs, Malcolmson said in a recent interview. The 4.5 cumulative threshold was already too low for many people who use drugs, said McBain. Donald McPherson, director of advocacy group the Canadian Drug Policy Coalition, echoed McBain's concerns. Setting appropriate thresholds matters because tolerance levels among people who use drugs are higher to the increased presence of fentanyl due to the increased presence of fentanyl in the drug market, Ms McPherson said. That's a really important point, it isn't is. it? If the thresholds are too low, it exposes them, this is a quote, it exposes people to more increased police surveillance, it exposes them to having to buy smaller quantities and so accessing the illegal market more often. Yeah, it goes on to say making the thresholds cumulative means the limit counts for the total amount of drugs in possession instead of the cap existing for each substance separately. The 2.5 gram cumulative threshold also discounts the realities and needs of people who use drugs as they are often uh, used as multiple types of drugs on a regular basis, McBain said. Sometimes they use what they can get. Indeed. We are now in the sixth year of the worst drug toxicity crisis and death crisis that the country has ever seen before, said McPherson. There is an imperative to move on this kind of policy change. McBain said she wants to understand what will be accomplished by setting the threshold so low. And she's quoted as saying, the goal is still to punish people for accessing what they need. And the only way they can access what they need at this point in time here is to go to the illicit drug market, she said. Mm, and, and that uh, remains the problem. It is. Therein lies the problem. And that will inevitably be an ongoing debate, I imagine, and if you look at the difference between the attitude of the federal government and of the local government in Australia, um, so particularly the ACT, uh, the, it, it is echoed. Similar story, yeah, federal yeah, government. Same sort of story, federal government. Tough on drugs. Differently. Yeah. Yep. But the 2.5 threshold is seems to me to be a silly idea. Mm. Um depending upon whether fentanyl is going to be included. I mean, they have a death epidemic yeah. and have done for... And people are desperate to try and find changes and policy solutions. Well, to... 
the United States isn't even thinking of no. anything like this. And no. they've got, had what, 2021, they had 100,000 deaths? Yep. 100,000 overdose deaths. Just accepted as part of and, prohibition. And they're still debating even the thought of safe injecting, what they overdose prevention place. That having to call them in New York City, yeah, just to make them acceptable, socially yep. acceptable, yeah, and it's uh, hard to make progress when, you know, well, you... when the language is so difficult to, when you know, the changing of the of the language is a, a big issue, and uh, we've done articles on that too, as have able and you know various harm reduction organisations, how you talk about things, how you label people um, adds to or detracts from the amount of discrimination. Yeah, language, that we language face. is powerful. Very yeah. powerful. Very powerful. All right, we'll play one last Saint song in yep. um, honour of Chris Bailey and this is uh, This Perfect Day, The Saints. Oh, wow. All right, um, that was the final Saints uh, track for this special um Tribute to Chris Bailey, and that was yeah. this perfect day. And we've got a sad. We've got a short piece about uh, benefits of quitting, quitting smoking. smoking as effective as heart attack prevention drugs. This is by Hannah Sparks in the New York Post from April the seventh. Um, a quote from uh, Dr. Tinker van Trier of Amsterdam University Medical Centre in the Netherlands is: Patients could gain nearly five years of healthy life by quitting smoking. She said, "Heart disease patients who quit smoking saw the same life-saving benefits as taking three different heart attack prevention medications," according to Dutch cardiac researchers whose work was presented this week at a Congress of European Society of Cardiology. Um, she's quoted as saying, the benefits of smoking cessation are even greater than we realised, Van Trier, the author of the new study, said in a statement. Our study shows that kicking the habit appears to be as effective as taking three medications for preventing heart attacks, strokes, heart attacks and strokes in those with a prior heart attack or procedure to open blocked arteries. Their research pulled data from 989 patients, nearly 80% of whom were men, and an average age of 60, who smoked despite a history of heart attack or stroke. Patients of this profile would likely be prescribed standard causes of antiplatelets, uh, statins and blood pressure blood blood pressure-lowering drugs. Their statistical model ex estimated the years of life gained without another heart attack or stroke if they quit smoking, as well as for those who continued smoking but took three additional treatments to prevent cardiovascular events. LDL, or bad cholesterol-lowering uh, bempedoic acid, and PCSK9 inhibitors, as well as colchinine and anti-inflammatory medication. Those who simply quit smoking gained 4.81 healthy years, while others were just marginally better, with 4.83, despite taking three additional drug therapies. Smoking tobacco releases more than 7,000 chemicals into your lungs and bloodstream many of which weigh heavily on arteries, causing damage and constricting blood flow. 
At the same time, gases released into the lungs are captured by the blood, leaving less room for oxygen to reach the heart. More than 480,000 people die annually in the US due to first or second-hand cigarette smoke, according to the Centers for Disease Control. Quote, we know that cigarette smoking is responsible for 50% of all avoidable deaths in smokers, of which half are due to cardiovascular disease, von Trier noted. Meanwhile, the doctor noted that the many other advantages of quitting tobacco on respiratory health and cancer prevention, for example, were not figured into their study, suggesting that far more can be gained. Quote, smoking cessation remains a cornerstone of preventing heart attacks and strokes and improving overall health at any time, she said. Yeah, my understanding is so long as you quit before you've got something, you know, major like lung cancer or your body can recuperate um, can and recover um and i don't know that we've had propaganda jeffrey and you know as a smoker as i remember being told earlier on that and i wondered where this came from that if we gave up smoking whatever happened to us was irreversible that no. whatever we'd had, you yeah. know, what we'd ever we'd done so to ourselves bother. by smoking, yeah. don't you know, you didn't do anything, didn't increase, the, it was no increased benefit to your heart or to your body functions. Well, it's good to illness. know that's not true. It is good to know that that's not true. So all these smokers there out there, there is research coming out that says that yeah. it's not true. So you, yeah, you can recuperate. You and... can recover. Yep. Uh, it doesn't as yet say that your lungs are going to get better, but. The odds are that...